1: Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I'm here with Zulina Maxwell, and we are joined right now by indigenous activist and award-winning author. His book, is, the second edition, is coming out. It's called Decolonizing Wealth. Edgar Villanueva, thank you so much for joining us this morning.
2: Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. I'm Absolutely. excited about this
1: book. This is. Yeah, me too. This is absolutely fascinating. So I, I kind of want to start from the beginning. Um, let's talk about the system that we currently have in place. You focus on our healthcare, educational systems, and financial systems, and an understanding of how colonialism are perpetuated is perpetuated through them. Can you just set that up for folks who might be thinking about this kind of thing for the first time?
2: Sure, absolutely. Um, You know, I I think about it as 500 years ago, a virus touched the shores of this country, and that virus is colonization. And colonization seems pretty normal to all of us because our history books are full of it, and because to this day, many of the colonizing powers talk about colonization not with shame, but with a lot of pride in their accomplishments. It's actually very strange. And this, this violent force that was all about dividing and conquering, commanding and controlling, and above all, exploiting, was really about accumulating and controlling and hoarding all of the wealth. And those dynamics of dividing and conquering um, still exist in our culture and our way of being. Colonization is not just uh, something that happened 500 years ago. It continues to happen. And those dynamics show up in our policies, in our education system, um, in our environmental policy, and absolutely in any place where uh, we're we're dealing with wealth, such as finance and philanthropy.
0: I feel like this is such an undercovered thing. Um, number one, because of what you've started out saying, which is that we actually don't like often go like, "Wow, it is a little bit weird that we sort of brag on ourselves about how we discovered America." Um, When what that was was settler colonialism, where we committed acts of mass genocide to take people's land and then cut it up uh, and then sell it as real estate. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, it, it feels like to me, like just first that that first point is something that people don't talk about enough. But the other piece of this, too, is is this idea that there are people who have a lot and they they have a lot of stuff because they They've earned it or deserve it. Um, And somehow they're savvier and smarter. And then if you don't have wealth or a lot of stuff, then you somehow have, you're like somehow a failure at this thing. We're all trying to do called life. Um, Can you speak to sort of the piece where from birth, we're sort of acculturated to believe that our worth comes from the amount of stuff we have. Our worth comes from, uh, the amount of money in our bank account and that you could like actually feel better or worse about yourself as a human being based on just that alone.
2: Absolutely. You know, I, I have subscribed to the idea as a child growing up in poverty and, and my mom was a domestic worker. So I had this strange proximity to people with wealth. And how I viewed them and esteemed them versus my own family was was really dysfunctional because I internalized um, those very messages of, you know, maybe my family didn't work hard enough. Maybe I need to pull myself up by the bootstraps. But the truth is, um, you know, that poverty in this country is a product of public policy. And those of us who come from poverty and our families are um, still living in poverty, it's a, it's a product of generations of of policies that have prohibited our families from accumulating wealth. And there's been an, uh, mass uh, generations of uh, advantages for white people in this country to allow for them to build wealth in a very different way. I would also say that poverty is the product of theft. Because we, um, as people of color, um, I'm indigenous, you know, land was taken away. There were forced mm-hmm. removals. Even my grandparents' generation, we're hearing right now in the news about these, uh, you know, children being found, the remains of children being found at Indian boarding schools. This was recent history where right. our way of being mm-hmm. um, and our culture and our very families were being ripped apart by by colonial um, colonizers, basically. And so we are still recovering from... Not only policies that have devastated our, our our communities and prohibited us from thriving but also from theft just the very taking um, of resources and of course we know that's the same in the black community um, when when black communities have come together and um, have have begun to build wealth and thrive that wealth has been taken away um, you know even the the Tulsa Tulsa massacre is an example of that that we um, acknowledged this year finally um, in this country. So it is this this idea that, you know, I think white supremacy has <laughs> has really perpetuated this this propaganda, this idea of something that is just not true, where it's actually all about policy and the extraction of wealth that has created this divide um, of who has wealth and who doesn't have wealth in this country.
1: One of the things that we do to, to sort of avoid that policy conversation, to avoid having to talk about w- what structures create poverty um, intentionally, is to focus on philanthropy and to focus on charitable giving. And, uh, you know, I think it, it, it makes a lot of people feel like they're doing something good to rectify the wrong that has been done when they donate to causes uh, for marginalized people. How do you see philanthropy playing into this idea of our financial system
2: as colonialism? It's very much connected. Um, you know, philanthropy, as you're saying, in general, philanthropy is a good thing, right? It's about loving people, sharing resources. Philanthropy, institutional philanthropy has done a lot of good um, in, this, in this country. It supports social movements. Um, But we have to really take a step back and and look at what's really happening and understand that philanthropy and the money that we have in these institutions, which is about $1 trillion um, in the United States, we're talking about a lot of money. We have to ask the question, where did that money come from? And that money came from... You know, uh, corporations and, and families that were given uh, again this, th- these accumulated benefits to be able to acquire and amass wealth in the first place, and so although we're using some of that money uh, towards good, it's still a part of a, um, a history of uh, the accumul of a history of how the accumulation of wealth has actually created trauma in communities, and now that we have all of this money in philanthropy, you know, communities of color who have played such a a major role in helping to build wealth in this country, we actually don't benefit that much from philanthropy. Less than 10% of grants from charitable organizations go to organizations led by Black and Indigenous and people of color working in our communities. And so we have an injustice, I think, all the way around when we think about where the money came from to start these foundations and also who's currently benefiting from those foundations.
0: I've always had this really strange feeling whenever I'm at and because of the work we do you know we get invited to like a non-profit gala or like um an auction (laughs) um different types of events where people dress up in fancy clothes and have open bar um and then make donations to a particular cause and like I've been to a whole you know array of different events like that some where I don't feel as uncomfortable because it's um you know an advocacy organization that is helping a very specific and you know usually not helped group of people right it's not it's not sort of the 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 top line charities it's it's a very specific thing that not enough people are in that in that field those events feel better than the ones where it's a whole bunch of people raising their hand to give a thousand dollars to like give clean Mm -hmm. water to someone one somewhere else like there there's levels to these types of this sort of um you know philanthropic uh genre where you dress up and then you donate some like donate and then write it off on your taxes later um Mm -hmm. you know to somebody who has so much less than you and then you you know take your your uber black home to your upper west side apartment like those events always felt wrong that they they feel wrong like now that I, you know when Mm -hmm. i i always like didn't feel right in the room this doesn't feel right this feels really like this feels representative of part of the problem it feels a lot like the hunger games kind of like being in this room um can can you speak to um what you said about poverty being the result of policy because i think often we think of poverty is a character flaw like you're poor because there's something wrong with how you are living your life. That is why you are living in circumstances with less money because there's something that you are doing that is wrong and I am doing the right thing, which is why I have more. But like, we've been having this conversation about systems. Systems are made up of policies. People implement those policies. So can you speak to how the po- it's really the policies that are, that's creating the reality where uh, certain groups stay in poverty and it's a cycle.
2: Yeah, you know, folks who come from poverty, right, we may internalize some of those narratives around the bootstrap or, uh, you know, pulling ourselves up uh, by the bootstraps. But I also work with people who um, have a lot of wealth because I work in the space of philanthropy and there's also narratives that they have in their families about money. It's really interesting um, and uh, some of those are, are false narratives about you know so someone working very hard and and you know not saying that people don't work hard and people haven't worked hard um, but a lot of that wealth was inherited and, and passed down and, and so it just builds and, and accumulates over time and no one really talks about um, you know, the policies through the years that have really benefited and propped up um, white folks in this country that we have not been able, as people of color, to have access to, including, like, some of the policies historically that are are sort of labeled as, um, you know, progressive um, um, economic policies, like the GI Bill, which, you know, some say helped to establish the, the middle class in the United States, right? A lot of folks were able to get a home for the first time and to begin building wealth. But um, you know, those of us who study those policies closely will, will understand that there were exclusions to um, those policies that certain groups of folks um, like farmers and like domestic workers were not eligible to benefit from the GI Bill. And of course, those professions at the time were um, you know, a majority occupied by people of color, so all through through time, even when there's been attempts to have policy to help, um, you know, build wealth and, or, or, you know, to close this wealth gap, there's always been exclusions for people of color. So we are really, um, you know, looking at generations and generations of just very intentional policies and, and of course, white supremacy that has continued to per, um, perpetuate this, this gap. You know, uh, to your point about the galas, I just kind of chuckle because I've been to many, many of those, too. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, th- there is a difference um, of feeling in some of those because, for me, it's like in some places it's really about charity, right? It's really about coming together and writing this, this check to some folks over here that we don't know or have a connection to a relationship to. And it, it, is, it is sort of um, it, it feels like you're alleviating some guilt because of your, yeah. your status. Um yeah. versus organizations and, and nonprofits that I'm a part of that I'm supporting where I am I'm deeply connected and centered in relationship and I know those communities and I know those organizations. So I'm I'm putting my money to use in a very different way where it feels like a sort of reciprocity. I'm giving back and um these communities or your organizations are working in my community. So it, it really is I I say money can be medicine because it really is about how we deploy money. It's not about the money all the time. It's really about us as people and how we are putting attention behind our resources. Is it centered around relationship or is it centered around, um, you know, some, some type of disconnected, you know, guilt relief kind of thing? Because I think that money used in the right way can actually help to repair you know, not only the the race wealth gap, but also just our, our history of, of racial violence and trauma by using money in a, in a very different way than it has been used historically.
1: We only have I about have, a minute left, so I, I don't want to ask, ask, you, ask you too complicated, reporting, complicated a question. will have to happen another day. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>.
0: Yes,
1: <laughs> and I want to talk about reparations. So let's just have you back <laughs> yeah. sometime to yes, get this please. conversation going. Yes.
2: <laughs> yes, please. But
1: we're we're the book. Is called uh, Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. Um, we highly recommend it. Edgar Villanueva, thank you so much for joining us this morning.
2: Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it.
1: Anytime. Willie back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast.
0: Thanks for listening. <laughs>